Welcome to Warpod, a podcast brought to you by Safer World, asking international experts about the risks of contemporary conflict and how to address them. Hello, I'm Abigail Watson, Conflict and Security Policy Coordinator at Safer World, with Delina Godjo, Associate Fellow at Egmont and PhD candidate at Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence. Today we were joined by James Rogers, Assistant Professor of War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark, Jennifer McArdle, Adjunct Senior Fellow with the Defence Programme at the Centre for New American Security, and Anurada Damale, Assistant Researcher at Vertic and UK Director of Women of Colour Advancing Peace and Security, or WCAPS. In this episode, we grappled with some issues which may define the future of conflict, including space, the Arctic, climate change, training, and cyber. While all of these issues are very different, they share the fact that they are often dealt with in silos and treated as buzzwords by many policymakers. With our three experts, we explored how these issues are misunderstood, how they will affect the future of conflict, and what we should do about them. Hello, everyone. It's really lovely to have you here. Um, given that, as Abby said, we will be discussing quite a lot of issues here today, could you start by telling us a bit about your field of study? So I would go with Jen first. Thanks. Um, and thanks for having me here. So I look at the future of military training with a focus on how training, content, architecture, and delivery can evolve and change to better meet the challenges of near peer or peer competition and conflict. And more broadly, my work explores how new methods of warfare or new technologies dictate changes in training regimes. So for instance, the incorporation of cyber is creating new imperatives in training. So this is enforcing the entire military, not just cyber warriors to embrace technology-based training architectures in new ways. Anu? Sure. So thank you very much for having me uh, on. Uh, So I work for the verification and monitoring team at Vertic, and we look at all kinds of international security issues. But today I'm particularly going to be talking about space, safety, security and sustainability. Um, The reason for this is that we've had treaties that have existed for years and years well, a singular treaty, the Outer Space Treaty, that's existed for a very long time. But uh, as we come towards the modern age, we've seen more overcrowding in outer space, collision incidents and escalation taking place in outer space um, to do with ground levels armed conflict. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, and what needs to be done to more effectively regulate outer space to make it fair for everyone. But I'm also going to touch a little bit on the work that we do at WCAPS on intersectional diversity and inclusion um, today. So thank you. How do you follow space collisions? My, my topic's nowhere near as cool as yours. Um, I, I focus on the, the history of weapons technologies, specifically precision technologies and, and drone warfare. And I kind of utilize the deployment of drones in contemporary security issues as a lens through which you can analyze the world analyze the hotspots of contemporary conflict and where nation states or perhaps terroristic actors are deploying those drones and what that tells us about a region at that point in time. And so um, 
yeah, I, I geographically, in terms of my work, um, spread quite widely from uh, up to the Arctic, where drones are proliferating at a record rate, and um, well, down to the, the Sahel, Middle East, uh, Iranian use of drones. Uh, drones are kind of the thing that, uh, that, that binds my research area. So as I said in the introduction, I think in all of these areas, the issues that you work on are often treated in mainstream media, but also by policymakers and some experts who are moving into this space as buzzwords that are maybe poorly understood or, or misconstrued and misrepresented. So I'm interested to hear from all of you what, what you're hearing in mainstream discussions about your work and what are the key things that people are getting wrong when it comes to the, the big issues. So shall we go in the same order again? So I actually wouldn't characterize the discussion on training as a mainstream one. I think we tend to discuss the broad contours of what our future force should look like and the platforms that are in development or that we should procure like drones to shape that future force. But training, it's often an afterthought. In fact, you know, I asked a British submariner several years ago about why that was the case. Why is training consistently an afterthought? And his response to me was simple. He said, weapon systems are sexy. Military platforms are sexy. Training just isn't sexy. And as a result, training hasn't been a core part of the discussion about what our future force really, um, really needs to be. And I'd argue that we really need to fundamentally rethink our approach to training along the lines of the shifts to training that took place during the Cold War. So during the Cold War, competition with the Soviet Union, sporadically interrupted by intense combat, like in Vietnam, inspired a series of paradigm shifts in the US approach to training, like the Navy's Top Gun School and the Air Force's Red Flag exercise. And I think we really need to be thinking about training along the same lines today. Many of the assumptions that have undergirded our way of war since the Cold War, they're just no longer valid. Um, the te technological capabilities and asymmetric strategies of China and Russia, they largely invalidate the current American way of war. And that's a way of war that's predicated on power projection, the ability to operate from sanctuaries and overwhelming technological superiority. So, you know, if we can't guarantee information dominance in a future conflict, how do you ensure degradation dominance? And then how do you train for that? If we can't assume that we will have sanctuaries in a future conflict, how should training change for that? Do we need to rediscover tactical and operational deception? And does training need to account for that? So essentially, you know, as we think about our future force, we need to think about what sort of assumptions no longer hold valid and what the downstream effects are of that. And we need to think about that from an acquisition of concept development and a training perspective, because, you know, it fundamentally needs to change to support, you know, our future conceptions around how we're going to fight. So, I mean, firstly, Jennifer, I have to disagree. Training sounds incredibly sexy. Um, <laughs> so I think a lot of what I'm going to say is, is going to echo what Jennifer's already said. Um, and that is talking about the assumptions we have held historically surrounding what is power, what is dominance and what structures exist um, within our society, because one of the mainstream discussions in, well, there are so many mainstream discussions going on in space at the moment. It's gone from zero to 100 very quickly. Um, we've gone from just seeing space launches and beautiful pictures of Earth from the moon um, to a launch happening every other week to 
crude space flight taking place um, and competitions within hugely uh, rich uh, institutions trying to prove who has the upper hand technologically. Uh, on the flip side of that, we have massive corporations who are delivering satellite systems to cover the entire orbit and tell us every bit of information um, about Earth and about orbit that it can. Um, and there is just a lot of convergence happening at the moment, in my view, when it comes to space dialogue. Um, there is, there last year was an incident where a Soviet, uh, a defunct Soviet satellite and a Chinese instrument almost collided over Earth, um, which would have created a ridiculous amount of debris. And it was the first time when I went on Twitter, and I live on Twitter, I went on Twitter and saw Leo Labs, which is a space track management company, amongst other things, live tweeting this and seeing my friends who aren't tuned in necessarily to the space community being, you know, seeing this and, and thinking, oh my God, this is catastrophe. On the flip side, seeing things like SpaceX or, um, the first uh, commercial space flight that taking place between Virgin, Virgin Galactic and so on, um, and being amazed by it and not realizing that actually all of these issues are incredibly interconnected. Um, and one of the biggest issues in my view that is a legacy issue within the international security realm, and I come at this from a science policy perspective because that's my background, um, is this siloing and inability to think of issues within a greater international system. And I think space is an amazing example of a domain within which if you don't think of the international system and how it connects to the economy, to the climate, to all different kinds of policy within government structures, then you are risking those other structures. And I think th there are many things that, that go wrong. Um, and the biggest thing that's going wrong at the moment is this hype and the use of the term uh, space race or, you know, something along those lines. You will have heard it a lot if you follow space people, but space has always been militarized, always it, from the beginning of day. Um, you know, nuclear and space started around the same time, but nuclear got... A reputation and space had pretty pictures and so <laughs> there's this almost delusion that space is suddenly this hot bed of nefarious activity but actually it always has been used for military purposes what's happened now is that our technology has emerged so quickly so there's this emerging technology race there's the lack of consensus in space and so trying to deploy emerging technology in space is just causing what one could call the tragedy of the commons, which is where you have this resource, which everyone should be able to use, but unfortunately it's being depleted by its use and there's no one taking accountability for it. Um, now I'm I'm gonna stop myself from going on at this point, uh, but yeah, that I think that should set the tone for the rest of our conversation. Yeah, you, you make me think of uh, Operation Paperclip, which was after the Second World War when the US hoovered up as many Nazi scientists as they could that were working on the vengeance rockets and they put them to work to try and beat the Soviet Union to the moon. But of course, that was also part of creating massive intercontinental ballistic missiles to ensure they had the advantage edge 
um, which they did in terms of the actual technologies and the precision they could achieve with those gigantic missile systems. And of course, that leads us into that space race and the contested ideologies that occur up there. I've, I'm going to, I don't know, I've got a question. I'm really interested. So I'm just going to derail this whole process. Um, do you think that, that space collisions um, could potentially be, be a, a trigger for international conflict or destabilize the international community? Because that's that's something I hadn't really thought of before and I find that really interesting. Well, that's a really good question. I'm actually writing about this at the moment. <laughs> um, so, yes, I do. Um, and the reason behind that uh, has got to do with several different things. First is a lack of regulation or coherent regulation. So the Outer Space Treaty, which is the single biggest treaty that exists when it comes to space behavior, probably the only one, there are regulations here and there, but yes. Um, there is a thing on it called the Liability Convention, which says, you know, if from the point of launch, if a state's spacecraft or mission causes damage to another country, they are liable for that payment. However, there's not much to say for uh, missions that haven't been registered in time. There is the UN Registry Office for Objects in Space, which has seen massive delays of, of states putting in when things have been launched into space, why they've been launched to space, what's the purpose. So if you don't know what the thing is, if it's a legacy instrument that ha didn't have a you know, um, mechanism to come back down to Earth safely or to break up in space, um, then a collision could hit some countries National, national technical means or critical infrastructure, such as a weather satellite or a military satellite. And that very easily, as we've seen on Earth, could become a reason for active or passive conflict of some form. Again, there's this, uh, I think I said convergence earlier of issues, but I meant divergence. Here, you're seeing this entanglement of there isn't the right regulation and things are overpopulating and getting more aggressive in space. And there's no definition of what a space weapon is, is the other problem. So if there's no way of attributing, if there's no way of discerning whether something was purposeful or not, or verification of intent for something that happened, then any excuse for political drama, I feel for some countries is a good excuse, is my too long didn't read version of that. Kind of, and I suppose the 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 risk of mistake mistakes in space. I know you could think of so many cool titles for the paper you're writing. I want to I want to hear some of them, but um, I suppose that that risk of mistakes can also give nation states a certain deniability. I didn't mean to knock out your military satellite. Um, it, it just crashed into into a bit of space debris, and yeah. then that kind of really restricts the international community and their ability to to react and that's something i suppose that overlaps with my research because when we talk about drones um, and the fact that they've spread so far and wide to 102 different state actors and at least 63 different non-state actors and so many of them are, are supplied by just a handful of nation states then you have so many actors in one region such as the middle east who are deploying drone systems that look almost identical. And so you've got that same level of deniability. Warpod from Safer World. Interpretive flexibility in policy instruments is one of the most interesting and irritating things in my view that exists in international governments, especially when it comes to technology systems, how it connects to society, how it connects to actually the differences within society. So uh, again, I will be really quick. 
but there was a massive debris incident last year from allegedly, and I'm putting in air quotes, allegedly a Chinese rocket, which had a single stage launch and broke up in the atmosphere, flew around the earth really dangerously and space track, which is a US department were tracking it. The orbit was incredibly dangerous. It almost landed in Manhattan. It ended up in the Cote d'Ivoire, but it wasn't covered as much as it would have if it landed in Manhattan. So, you know, that it connects also to how much importance do we give to incidents when it plays into the power structures that already exist? Like, what are the consequences? How does that play into the consequentialism of it all? Interesting. So this is so thank you, because you've helped me find my point again. So we've got the, we've got this kind of shared idea of deniability um, around technologies because we can't be for, be sure who is deploying them or if it was a mistake and then there is the kind of interlinked point here as well of the use of technologies that we think might not be destabilizing or we misjudge um, the end effects of their use and so we've seen this recently with the um, attacks on the the Mercer Street which was an Israeli managed tanker that was going through the and around the Gulf of Oman and it was targeted with pinpoint precision by an Iranian made drone which we don't quite know who fired it because the same drone is supplied to Houthis in the region and technically it's within range of that particular ship at that point in time and so much like it did in 2019 with the attacks on Aramco which was again something we weren't sure whether or not it was Iran but it was Iranian made drones that Iran sanctioned it because it could have been the Houthis it creates this air of confusion but I wonder if at some points it's a kind of a, a deliberate confusion generated by both Iran and accepted by the West because if Iran can project power in that way and kind of keep pelting these kind of bullets one by one and keep pressure on the West um, then that, that's that's how they de- that's how they deploy power that's how they can keep pressure on the west and then the west can take that deniability and say well maybe iran didn't do it and keep tensions low and try and get negotiations on the go to get iran back on the iranian nuclear deal and so it kind of plays in everyone's favor but then when that deniability goes wrong and when this recent attack was so close to the south of Iranian territory, one of the closest that there's been, then the West united the G7 and Israel and they said this was Iran. And so you can also start to see that when things are attributed very clearly, and I wonder if this will be the case in the space issue as well, if you do start to see nation states saying, well, that was China and we are going to take action, then it's, like I said at the beginning, technologies are a lens through which you can help analyze the relations between nation states. And so you start to see that the deliberate deniability that was there starts to fade away because nation states' opinions of each other start to degrade, tensions start to rise, and you disregard that whether attribution is there or not. So it's, um, yeah, really interesting stuff. I just wanted to go back to Abby's question very quickly, which is, and, and, and directed at you, James, which is this whole mainstream debate. So on the drones, for example, I know that we shifted and we're moving towards deniability and, and accountability. Um, but do you think that the mainstream debate on drones is getting stuff right finally? Is it changing? Please keep guiding me on track. It's going to be like herding cats, I fear, for you guys. But I'll try my very, very best. I'll keep to the point. I think there's loads of misunderstandings in the drone debate. I think we see drones still as part of a a bloodless war narrative, as part of being cost-free, as Robert Gates once said, odorless. Um, It can go back to the first Gulf War. We could take it through to Kosovo. 
um, we could move it through to the drone wars of, of, of Obama, the part that these drones are part of a, uh, a just war, a war waged proportionately. They save lives. And as we see the withdrawal um, from Afghanistan and how badly, of course, that has gone, and we see this call to end forever wars, I think that we, we won't end forever wars. We'll just end the deployment of vast amounts of troops on the ground or any troops at all. And instead, you'll have more of a reliance on partner and proxy forces, and you'll have a vast reliance on air power and especially drones that will be deployed ever more around the world. The trouble is, as I was just saying about... Um, the use of Iranian drones and the proliferation of drones. Drones are not cost-free. They're not cost-free in terms of their kinetic use and the effects it has on civilians on the ground, and their non-kinetic effects in terms of, of trauma of civilian populations. They're also not cost-free on the escalatory ladder of state tensions. So you think about the fact that you, you start to violate sovereignty as a normal thing to do. You send your drones over another nation's airspace, and that's okay. You know, that's something that the US is doing, it's something that Iran's doing, it's something so many drone powers are doing because it was set as a norm by the Obama administration and continued through the Trump administration. We saw Donald Trump assassinate a state actor, General Soleimani, in a third party nation, Iraq, without that country's approval. And so you've also got the norm here of a, a state actor being assassinated by drone. And then that led to Tehran thinking that it was gonna be attacked in, well, no, then it led to Tehran attacking the US at Ain al-Assad Air Base with precision missiles. Then it led to Iran thinking that um, Tehran was gonna be attacked directly by US cruise missiles. And then that led to the shooting down of the Iranian airliner and the death of all souls on board. And so you, you start to see, what if that wasn't a Ukrainian airliner? What if that was, British Airways or American Airlines or something like that, do you then start to have the escalatory ladder towards international conflict between very competent militaries with a vast amount of great power allies on their side? So let's stop thinking about drones as being individual systems that are cross-free and can violate everything. Instead, let's see that they have an effect on civilian populations, that they are on an escalatory ladder of great power tensions, and uh, they pose a threat to international security and to use them in a, a, very, a very more strategically competent manner that understands those quite more, more, more nuanced issues with the drone. So I'd love to jump in here because I think James raises so many good points that kind of ties back to why the Center for New American Security decided to start this training project. I think a lot of the debate is around technology and we kind of look at technology as a panacea. Um, we talk about drones, but we oftentimes forget the fact that humans are an innate part of this, that you know, any competition and conflict at the end of the day, you know, this is a human-led endeavor and humans will be making the decisions to deploy those systems. I mean, humans are likely going to be in or on the loop in some way, shape or form. We were talking about deniability earlier. I mean, deniability goes back to state space, but there's a lot of corollaries to the cyber domain. You know, attribution is a very problematic thing and different states are obviously trying to make things more complex, more contested and make your ability to understand the situation more difficult. So inevitably those, those kind of problems that we're going to be dealing with, they will be, you'll be operating in an information environment that's fundamentally degraded. And we're asking humans to make decisions in these kind of conditions. And right now we're not really giving them the tools to make those good decisions, which is part of the reason why we're trying to figure out, okay, you know, if 
you know, the use of unmanned systems is going to define future conflict in some way, shape or form? What are the kind of tools that we need to give warfighters to make better decisions? And we also have to recognize that if we are operating in an information degraded environment, that decision making is going to be pushed downstream. So we're going to be asking, you know, younger soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen to be making decisions than theoretically they would have in the past. And so, you know, how do you create an environment that allows for that? And so, you know, one of the things we've been talking about and I um, is what we call synthetic training. So when we talk about training within the military, there's three different ways that you train. So one is live. And I think everyone can relate to live training. I mean, it was popularized in our imagination by Tom Cruise and Top Gun, you know, as people flying aircrafts and experiencing the dirt, dust and sweat of combat. Then there's virtual and you know virtual training can be anything from like an oculus rift all the way to a full motion multi-million dollar simulator and then there's constructive and constructive is basically a computer program it allows you to simulate all the entities so like soldiers sailors or civilians within a kind of conflict situation and so when we start to think about okay you know how do you train for these kind of environments where there's a lot of deniability, where, you know, information, um, the accuracy and validity of information is not assured, where you want to be using, say, unmanned systems in a way that, you know, fundamentally, um, where it runs, in, runs into issues with, say, with local civilian populations. You start to think about how can you use a virtual and constructive, so a synthetic environment, to allow for that. So we're basically trying to create these kind of virtual and constructive environments that allow the military to kind of experiment with how they could use these technologies to better understand a lot of the challenges that they're going to have to work through in current competition and future competition and conflict and to make better decisions, recognizing that the decisions they're going to make have to make are really difficult ones because, you know, States are trying to make the, you know, the entire kind of conflict situation incredibly complex. They are trying to create dilemmas um, where they can deny what's going on. So, yeah, I mean, right now we're basically trying to figure out ways to make training evolve to deal with a lot of the problems that that are being raised on this podcast. How do you but, simulate the the fog of war? in that situation how do you simulate what can go wrong will go wrong especially with a next generation of military personnel especially drone pilots who will never have been deployed are not fully trained pilots like the previous generation were who have transitioned from actually flying over active combat into drone pilot roles how is it that you you program what mistakes are yeah, so I mean, obviously it's challenging. Like anything, we should also recognize that, you know, simulation is also not a panacea, just like technology is not a panacea. You cannot simulate every single thing that could go wrong in a conflict scenario. But what you can do is based on your understanding of what future competition and conflict could look like. And this is why it is not a panacea, because it's based on how you conceptualize the future. You can start to integrate in models that can kind of simulate that for a warfighter. So for instance, um, if you are a drone pilot, you could create an environment based on the environment that they'll probably be operating in. So, you know, that could be the Baltics, it could be the Sahel, it could be the Indo-Pacific. 
you then you can start to bring in effects that simulate the kind of effects that they'd experience. So you can bring in cyber effects, information effects, space effects. You can create that kind of degraded environment. Essentially, you're trying to challenge them in a way where you're not saying this is what you're going to experience every time, but you're trying to get them to start to think with more agility, to be more creative. And, you know, if say an aspect of their system goes out, so, you know, maybe it's GPS, you know, they start to think, well, what else can I use to solve this dilemma? And is there a way that where I can still maintain mission assurance? Actually, Jennifer, one of the things you said earlier really got me riled up and it was talking about being in the loop or out of the loop when it comes to designing these environments and designing these automated technologies. Um, and it's about this idea of social construction of technology, right? So there's a, there's a whole school of thought that talks about how technology isn't just born and made. It, it, it's, it's designed a specific way based on the society that is using it. And it evolves over time. So phones getting bigger, phones getting smaller, um, men's shirts buttoning up the opposite way to women's shirts because men had women button their shirts up for them, you know, so on and so forth. And so I think one of the things that I would be remiss not to touch on um, is touching a little bit on my WCAPS work about why inclusivity is so important um, and accountability when it comes to talking about designing these systems, designing this, these training systems, for instance, or simulating scenarios mm -hmm. of, of warfare. And the reason is because the people that are designing it will have their own implicit biases. And I think often we forget that if that, that that's the case, you know, like um, we forget that because, uh, you know, I've, I've spoken to too many, for, for want of a better phrase, tech bros, who say that they work in AI and, you know, Siri and Alexa, and they're not biased. Like there's no bias there. Like, you know, we work in technology, it's completely neutral. And of course it's not, you know, who designs the technology? You have to think about that. Um, you have to think about the fact that um, whoever designs the technology will have had their own biases that they expect to play out within that technology. Um, and so you see there was a study done and I can't remember for the life of me by whom, but the way that men talk to Siri and Alexa versus the way that women talk to Siri and Alexa versus if you switch the quote unquote, again, gender, which is a whole thing on its own of the voice. And then looking at Twitter and the way when it used to crop images, the algorithm always selected what appeared to be a fairer skin image to be prioritized within that crop and the darker image or the darker person was cropped away. Um, and I think that when it comes to, and you know, I, I don't know an awful lot about um, drones, uh, automatic military training and, and so on and so forth and the loop design process of that. But my concern is always going to be, yes, we say that it takes away some of the stress of going into war from, from what I've heard, but if you design an AI or a system which regulates itself and goes in to war and you know decides that okay these are the people we need to shoot how do we know that there aren't biases within that system in and of itself which are perpetuating the views or political positions or whatever of the country and it, honestly like I think about this at least once a week. <laughs> you're, you're speaking my language I think this is part of the reason why I got into this space why I started focusing on training because I'm really just interested in the human element of warfare. Um, so I mean, obviously we can talk about synthetic training as a technology. I kind of think of it as a support tool to make better decisions or to allow humans to walk through, um, to experientially learn. So 
I would hope that if the military is choosing to deploy unmanned systems in that way, that they would be setting up these kind of you know, synthetic environments, or you could call them live virtual and constructive environments. So a live environment where you're injecting in kind of virtual or constructive overlays, where you can kind of start to walk through this process. And ideally, you are working with a diverse enough community that you can start picking out those issues prior to competition and combat, where you start to say, you know, this doesn't seem entirely right. Maybe we need to be doing things differently. Um, so, you know, I, I really want us to be experimenting. I want us to be training and I want us to be focusing on, on humans and, and war fighters and recognizing that technology empowers us. But at the end of the day, you know, warfare is an innately human activity and we need to constantly keep that front and center. Jen, I wanted to, I, I want here to ask you a little bit about civil military relations in this realm. So within simulations, um, do soldiers generally work with a, a civilian component as well? Abby and I um, tend to work a lot on security force assistance. So when Western trainers um, choose to train soldiers from other countries, how that works exactly. And there is, and we have often noticed that there is a civilian imbalance in the way training is delivered. So we were wondering how that would work within a simulation scenario. So the right, right now, the way synthetic training is deployed is you oftentimes have a mix of civilian contractors and military personnel. So the um, groups that design these synthetic kind of environments tend to be large kind of tech companies. You get the normal ones you always think about like the Lockheed's, but there are also like smaller kind of tech companies that work in the space. Then of course with training, you have the training content. So typically these companies will work hand in glove with the military services to ensure that the content actually reflects their needs. Um, I think the big issue when it comes to synthetic training is that there, and I know we brought this up earlier, is the issue with silos. So the defense policy community, because maybe training is generally kind of an afterthought, they don't really focus on synthetic training and they're not really kind of immersed with the synthetic training community. The synthetic training community um, tends to talk to themselves. I'm really interested, and in, this is part of the reason why the Center for New American Security started this whole initiative on the future of training, to kind of break down silos between the defense policy community the training community and the synthetic training community. So these are the technologists and scientists that are developing these systems. Because you know, if we keep going the way we're going, we're gonna have synthetic training systems that were designed for the assumptions that have kind of undergirded our way of fighting since the Cold War. Um, and we really kind of need new innovative kind of fresh tools to empower you know, change from a training architecture standpoint. And we're just not there yet. Warpod from Safer World. I would like to move now to, to the recommendations bit um, and how to make all of this better. Um, we wanted to address challenges with you, but I think you've you've done this well well enough on your own. Um, so so I would go perhaps first with James now. Um, James, it would be great if you could tell us how things could be done better? What are the main issues to look at whenever drafting policy around both the use of armed drones, but also um, competition in the Arctic? Yes, we haven't really spoken about the Arctic yet, but I think there's a way that we can bring this in. Um, so for me, as I've mentioned throughout this talk, I think that 
we misunderstand the power and importance of the drone and the destabilizing escalatory effect it can have between nation states when it is used in an offensive manner. Um, in the art, so like I said, like I said at the beginning, I, I, I see these drones. I see drones as a and as a lens through which we can analyze the the hot topics in international security and where drones are being used and where mistakes are happening is usually somewhere that there are heightened tensions between between nation states. Um, and so you can look to the Arctic now as climate change um, dramatically changes our world. You perhaps would more accurately call it the global climate crisis. Well, one of the places that we're seeing transforming is the Arctic and high north environment. And here as ice retreats over summer periods, it becomes an area where you can access uh, more resources, um, where Russia is looking to make the most of a, a vital economic bloodline that is the Northern Sea Route that will allow global trade to travel faster by around 10 days or so across the north of the of, of the Russian territory through the Arctic, as opposed to going round through Suez. And of course, as we saw with the blocking of Suez just a few months ago, and targeting on international shipping by terrorist or Iranian drones over in other parts of the Middle East, well, we can see how that could be an alluring area that will create lots of money uh, for Russia as every bit of world trade could travel through that area. Uh, we also saw President Trump try to buy Greenland. Um, we've saw some major points of contention around there as the US sees Greenland as a very important bastion in between itself and Russia. Um, and there's vast amounts of state activity increasing up there. As this happens, we're also starting to see the increase in drone technologies, a vast proliferation in the region. Um, Arctic drones, if you will. And this was spearheaded by President Putin in 2014 with his own Arctic drone squadrons, his pet project. And you have at least six drone bases dotted across the northern rim of the Russian Arctic. And alongside with satellite technologies and with a number of semi-autonomous bases and increasing numbers of military icebreakers, you have a virtual militarized net over that region. And of course, remember that Russia has its nuclear arsenals up there. That is part of its big bastion defense system. Um, in reaction to this, there hasn't been a de-escalation in the Arctic by the West and NATO powers in response to this, of course, of course not. There has been an escalation in terms of the security dilemma and up the escalatory ladder. And one of the ways that we've seen this happen is by every other nation state investing in drones that are capable to operate in the Arctic. Um, you see the US Sky Guardian, it has the tested capability lauded to work in those extreme Arctic conditions. You see the Danish Militude long endurance systems that will likely be um, purchased from the United States. And you, um, you have every major NATO power that is looking to deploy drones in that region. Now they're currently unarmed systems that are designed to provide surveillance and tracking of unwanted guests in the area. Um, but two things here. Number one, these are these are armable systems. They can be weaponized very easily. So will we see that as tensions rise, as global climate change affects us more? Will we see that as something that will, will happen in the Arctic? It's happened everywhere else. Are we to learn from that history? Will it happen in the Arctic? So I, I can pick up on what James was um, saying because he gave such a good kind of overview of how we think about competition and potential conflict in the Arctic. And you know, part of the reason why we really need to think about you know building these kind of training architectures or even experiment architectures to kind of think through that, I think there's just a really good kind of historic anecdote to this. So in during the Cold War, 
1946, the Canadians were really worried about um, their hemispheric defense, and they were really worried that the Soviets were going to invade Canada through the north via tanks. So they did this um, operation called Operation Muxcox, where they basically deployed a lot of their kind of military to the Arctic. And they realized after being there and having this kind of massive training event that that took place over 2000 kilometers, that basically that was not gonna happen. There was no way the Soviets were going to invade from the North via tanks. And I think, you know, part of the reason why, you know, creating these environments that try to mimic reality in some way, shape or form are useful is it not only provides useful training for the warfighter and, you know, which should allow for better decisions, but it also makes you start to think like, is this actually realistic? Is this something that we could expect the Russians to do today in the Arctic? Is this something we could expect, say, I don't know, maybe the Chinese to do? Um, is this some way, is there a useful way for the US to partner with other Arctic nations um, you know, in this way, shape or form? It's just a very useful kind of experimentation um, tool to think through the future potential possibilities. Don't really know how to follow that, to be honest. Um, I think, when James was talking about the sort of surveillance instrumentation and so on and so forth, there is just so much going on in space. And I think that there is a lack of consolidation. And if there is consolidation from governments, you know, I am sorry for saying that, but you need to make that clear. You need to be telling people, uh, you need to be telling stakeholders because this isn't just a state-state interaction. This is state and non-state actors. So this is countries and businesses. This is agricultural industry. This is climate change. This is communications. This is so much more than just military conflict. So much of our critical national infrastructure uh, is dependent on safe operation within space. And as things are going at the moment with the rate of debris increase, with the rate of satellite launch, with the lack of registration, notification, with anti-satellite capabilities. So the ability to hit to kill a satellite being demonstrated, countries announcing new space technology willy-nilly without really reflecting on what that means for their economy and the international sort of global economy and the processes. It's, it's forcing it, it's almost as though these actors, shocks, horror, are forcing a hierarchy within the space system that comes from state conflict based on ground-based arms control. And while shifting the political intent of states is, is a naive goal to have in the short term, I think a lot of the things that, that Jennifer was talking about, which is actually having the architecture to be able to train countries equitably on why space matters to them. Because, you know, if, if the conversations in state-state dialogue are going to be dominated by oh, it's going to cause nuclear escalation, then some countries are just going to switch off and it's going to happen um, and they shouldn't um, because a lot of their economy, a lot of the, the energy security, their food security, uh, climate security, that all comes from space-based assets in some capacity. Uh, and so having architecture for training that is designed not by the same group of people, but by an inclusive representative group of people and experts with different backgrounds um, that can equitably train and capacity build within countries on why space issues are important um, is one thing I would definitely say needs to happen. And the other thing I would say is that if you are a state, 
that wants to pioneer a technology which you know would be great from space makes sense from space and you know won't cause a lot of littering or is revolutionary take the opportunity to put that on the table in Geneva or Vienna or wherever you go in the negotiations and say this is something this is a technology that we want to deploy first show you all why it's so great and show you all why you should do it first but we also recognize that before we do this space needs to fix up there needs to be a lot that needs to be done and this is the this is one of many motivations to do it uh, so we really need countries to be posturing and pushing agenda not just for the sake of name not just for you know quote unquote transparency or responsibility but actually putting in the legwork and showing actors within the community and that includes civil service it includes ngos and civil society so people like me um to make sure that they're involved in that process yeah i, I completely agree with that and i think a lot of what you were saying what um points back to you know, the power of experiential learning. And when we think about future conflict, and I think you hit the nail on the head, I mean, this isn't, you know, this isn't a military first thing. Um, you know, we have to, you, I, the U.S. always bandies about the term whole of government, but it really is a whole of government, whole of civil society thing. And you want to create those experiential learning opportunities where the military can um, learn and train alongside the kind of people that will be involved in, you know, these, these types of decisions. And you also want to do that in a way where you're having partners and allies involved. You know, I realize I've been talking about these like large scale kind of training architectures, but experiential learning doesn't have to be that. It can be a simple war game and war game not meaning it has to be based around a war. Basically, it's just an experiential learning tool where you can walk through a kind of situation. So, you know, more war games on space where you can start to walk through a lot of the challenges that you highlighted and challenges alongside civil society, alongside um, policymakers, I think would be incredibly important and really very useful. Oh, Jennifer, we could have a whole series on space war games and the attempts <laughs> to do that. Um, but to, to just tack on to, to what you've said there, I think one other thing which needs to happen everywhere is stakeholder mapping understanding what you're operating and it comes back to systems theory because what will you'll realize that there, there are institutions and people beyond what you think are involved uh, and and I think this uh, this whole even doing it a little bit like I do it a little bit when I'm doing a project I'll realize oh my god why didn't I think of this very obvious individual or institution and it's because we're so siloed um, stakeholder mapping is just one of the many things that you can do to, to make that easier. Yeah, uh, this is excellent, excellent final point. Shall we, shall we end it here? <laughs> I think we could continue for the whole evening. Our thanks to Jen, Anu and James for those insights. Please join us next time on Warpod. Warpod from Safer World. You can listen to all previous episodes and catch the latest releases every month, wherever you get your podcasts, by searching for and following Warpod. And to find out more about our work at Safer World, please visit saferworld.org.uk.